Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon, and we bring to you different aspects that impact our clients and their employee benefits plan. Today, we're going to talk about a few recent court cases of interest to employers into group health plans, and I always love to talk about court cases because that puts uh, practicality into the discussion. Um, and the courts have been really fairly active here, and so we're going to discuss three different cases that have been opined on in the last month or so. So Chase, tell us about the first one. Yeah, thanks, Suzanne. And I agree, it's fun to talk about court cases when they come out. And practicality is really helpful for employers, but all three of these cases are coming from Northern districts and we are at the district level. So these are really kind of more regional, but uh, power to the North in these districts, I guess. Uh, the first one we're gonna talk about relates to COBRA election notices. And then we're going to get to two cases about the ACA, some challenges to the ACA. But this first one is COBRA election notices and specifically the processes by which employers send out their notices. And when we say employers, that could also include plan administrators, right? That's where the COBRA obligation applies. But the case name is Earl versus Jewel Food Stores. And the opinion was published on October 5th. 2022, so just a, a couple of weeks ago, and it comes out of the Northern District of Illinois. Um, and to spoil the ending, <laughs> the court ruled that an employer failed to document a good faith attempt to provide the required COBRA election notice to a terminated employee. So I wanted to spoil the ending because I want, uh, I want the audience to kind of know where we're headed here. Uh, right. But to help with that, um, uh, it's helpful to re, re visit the COBRA rules. And so COBRA requires an election notice to be provided to an employee and any covered dependents following a COBRA qualifying event, which in this case is the termination of employment. This is probably the most common qualifying event for COBRA. And uh, there are others like divorce or reduction in hours or qualification for Medicare, a couple others. But this one is the one that's the most common, the most familiar to employers. But remember that COBRA allows that terminated employee and any covered dependents to continue their coverage for up to 18 months and up to 36 for some of those other events. But remember, too, that COBRA applies to any employer with 20 or more employees. So hopefully that kind of sets the stage a little bit. With right. And I appreciate that, Chase. And, and uh, just to reiterate, when you say it's coming out of the District Court of Illinois, it's that means it is going to be only applicable in that area, but it, it nonetheless, it still provides an idea of how a court could rule in other districts. And so even though it may be directly applicable just in that area, it still um, provides guidance into how courts would look at this issue. And it, this one is obviously there are compliance rules that apply to, to COBRA. And this one is a fairly common one for most companies that are gonna be uh, dealing with COBRA. So Chase, tell us what happened in the case. Yeah, so uh, the plaintiff's name is Billy Earl. And again, this is all public information, so we're not divulging private information, but Billy Earl sued his, his former employer and that's Jewel Food Stores. And uh, Mr. Earl alleged that there was a failure to provide the COBRA election notice and also multiple counts of discrimination related to his termination. And we're, we're not going to talk about the uh, discrimination issues. 
But Jewel Food Stores was served, uh, they were acting as the group health plan administrator, and that means they're responsible for providing those COBRA election notices. Um, in addressing this COBRA claim, the court sort of began with the premise that employers must be able to prove a COBRA election notice was provided in good faith. And the standard actually is that proof of receipt is not required, which is kind of an interesting thing. You'd think you'd have to show that the individual actually received that notice. But what the rules really say and the guidance in the, in the court uh, rules uh, previously really say that an employer can satisfy this obligation by sending the required notice by first class mail with post office certificate of mailing or certified mail and, and with evidence of standard office procedures for generating and mailing COBRA notices plus evidence that procedures were followed in a disputed instance. So something internally to show that they actually followed that process. Um, so again, that's kind of a refresher on the standard that COBRA requires in actually providing the notice. Um, but it's always been interesting to me because, and sometimes problematic, I think, for COBRA plaintiffs, that this actual proof of receipt is not required. The employer just has to show evidence of these procedures and that it went out you know, via first-class mail. So that's an interesting standard. Um, but here, Jewel Food Stores, again, this is the employer, they were only able to produce an appropriately addressed COBRA election notice and an internal document certifying the election notice was mailed. There was no evidence of sending the, note, the COBRA election notice by first class or certified mail, no evidence regarding the company's standard COBRA notice mailing procedures, and no evidence regarding whether such procedures were followed with respect specifically to Mr. Earl, the complainant here, his election notice. And so based on that lack of evidence, the court found the employer did not meet its burden of proving it made a good faith effort to notify uh, this uh, individual of his COBRA rights. The case doesn't really go into penalties, um, but Mr. Earl would be entitled to COBRA and the COBRA maximum coverage period likely starts when he actually does receive that COBRA letter. So that's one example of, of sort of the risk here uh, for the employer and the plan, the COBRA coverage period would, would start later. Um, there could also be penalties if the DOL got wind of this and they could investigate and, and this and other faults in the employer's compliance practices. So there are some serious risks here as a result of this COBRA fail failure. So uh, Chase, what are some takeaways for employers? I mean, can you, can you give us a little more color as to what kind of evidence would have been satisfactory um, for the court in this case? Yeah, so it really serves as an important reminder for employers to review the, those, those procedures, right? How do they get COBRA election notices out? And uh, that could mean internal procedures or those followed by a third party administrator. If you have a COBRA administrator going back and reviewing how those are sent and uh, what's the process for coordinating with that um, COBRA administrator. Um, so being able to show that they have processes in place, being able to show that uh, mailings are taken. I always go back to, and I sometimes do this on my own personal phone. If I need to remember something, I just take a picture of it on my phone, right? I think something like that would have been taking a picture of the actual envelope with the stamp on it, with his name on it, might've been something that would, would show. Um, but if a former employee or other COBRA qualified beneficiary is suing their employer for failure to offer this COBRA coverage, the majority of courts have really held that the plan administrator, and again, that's usually the employer, 
has that burden of proving that it was properly sent, that the election notice was properly sent. And so record retention policies, I mentioned pictures, but just some type of documentation, um, keeping in mind that they can be called upon to prove mailing years after the quali COBRA qualifying event, some type of documentation retention policy. Um, th sometimes these things come up later. ERISA really has kind of a, an eight-year retention policy. So that's another thing to mention here that you should, as an employer, with respect to your group health plans, really have a retention policy for, for documents to be able to show those up to eight years later. And that sounds like so long, um, but we see these things come up. Yeah, we certainly all love COBRA and all the various questions and, and issues that they bring up. And this is a great reminder on best practices here to help avoid notice failures. But uh, I think some of these cases move us on to other topics. So what's the next case that we're going to look at? Yeah, so let's move on to a totally different topic. This case is called Texas versus the EEOC. And we all know the saying here in Texas, both Suzanne and I are in Austin, is uh, secede, y'all are lucky we don't invade, right? So this is That's Texas. Right. <laughs> <laughs> U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas and uh Texas and this court in particular have become famous for starting challenges to the ACA. And, and this case is about that as well. So this is an ACA related case that was decided on October 1st of this year. And the court issued an order that really vacates some HHS, that's the Department of Health and Human Services at the federal level, their guidance concerning gender affirming care. And they did that as arbitrary, capricious, and that the guidance was in violation of, of what's called the Administrative Procedure Act. So let's get some a little bit of background on this one. We have to go back to earlier this year. In March, HHS issued some guidance that interpreted what is known as Section 1557 of the ACA. And that section prohibits healthcare programs that are receiving federal funds uh, from discriminating against patients on the basis of sex. And the guidance interpreted that section to prohibit federally funded entities from restricting an individual's ability to receive medically necessary care, and that includes gender-affirming care from their healthcare provider solely on the basis of their sex assigned at birth or gender identity. That guidance from HHS also stated that restrictions on the receipt of medically necessary care on the basis of gender dysphoria gender dysphoria diagnosis or perception of gender dysphoria, that that could violate the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA. And so HHS was kind of basing their guidance in part on the US Supreme Court case known as Bostock, Bostock versus Clayton County. And that held that Title IX, again, we're getting pretty technical here, but just wanna provide the background. Title IX, whose definition of sex discrimination was incorporated into ACA Section 1557, that prohibited discrimination based on gender identity or, or homosexuality. And so HHS issued this guidance, and um, they did that after the Texas governor instructed the state's Department of Family and Protective Services to investigate incidents of sex change procedures performed on minors as child abuse. And so the state of Texas, after this guidance came out from HHS, sued HHS, as well as the EEOC. EEOC is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and they issued similar guidance a year earlier. And so um, 
the U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland asked the court to declare the guidance. Uh, oh, sorry, that Texas was asking that that guidance be declared un unlawful, um, vacated, and enjoined the agencies from enforcing it. So sorry, that's well, a lot that, of technicality. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's good background. It is. It's very and it's a technical question, right? But so where did the court come out on this? Yeah, so again, we're in the Northern District of Texas here at the district court level, and the court agreed with the state and basically declared the guidance unlawful and vacated it. The court really reasoned that the guidance took the Bostock decision too far. And according to the court, the holding in the case was limited to the status of being homosexual or transgender, and it did not go so far as to cover all conduct correlated with that status. And so the court, based on that, stated that the Bostock decision did not provide support for the HHS guidance. And um, in addition to that, they found that HHS acted in arbitrary and capricious fashion, sort of by failing to explain how the Bostock decision applied to gender dysphoria. And by implying that gender dysphoria was a disability under the ADA, um, that, that the court found that to be a misstatement of the law. They also determined that the guidance was a substantive rule and found that the HHS did not follow the Administrative Procedures Act when it issued its guidance without notice and an opportunity for interested parties to comment first. So that gets to some of the technicalities in how guidance is published, right? We have laws that are passed by Congress or a court decision that comes out, and then we have agencies that are trying to come up with guidance and they have to follow very specific procedures in putting that guidance out. And what basically the court is saying is that the, the HHS and the EEOC did not follow the proper procedures to put out those rules. There needed to be comment periods and notice periods that were, were actually not followed. Yeah, that's right. The you know agencies, um, when I say that's right, in terms of um, agencies are limited in what they can do, and they're limited by um, you know the statutes that govern their behavior. So they're not really permitted. When they say that they acted arbitrary and capricious, um, they're saying that they acted outside of the bounds of what they're able to do within their mandate, so to speak. Right. Um, and so it, it's very interesting. It's a very really technical question on whether they followed their procedures correctly, whether they were given the mandate to act in the way that they acted. And so it does, it, it, it is fairly technical. So what what's the takeaway here, other than I'm sure this is going to be appealed if it hasn't been already, um, but what's the takeaway for employers and their group health plans? Yeah, mostly just awareness for now. And this, like you said, this is being appealed. It, it demonstrates though how the sex discrimination prohibitions under this ACA section 1557 and gender dysphoria treatments in particular are really in legal flux. And we, we see a battle here really between some of the states and what the federal government is doing. Those states, again, including Texas are really uh, where this one started, they're restricting or prohibiting gender dysphoria treatments. Whereas the federal government is trying to prevent the states from doing that and really asserting that those prohibitions are a form of sex discrimination prohibited under federal law. So as of now, no settled uh, legal rule. The court ruling is you know, in flux and, and being appealed, but employers need to keep an eye on, on these developments and, and we'll likely see this one work its way up through the appeals courts and, and possibly even end up before the US Supreme Court. But an interesting development and another challenge to the ACA uh, coming out of Texas. 
Uh, you know, I agree. It is interesting. And I, uh, I mean, it, we're the legal nerds that we just enjoy cases, you know, in case law and figuring out how these things come down and, and what's argued. But um, it, it, does, it does have actual impact, too, for people and for employers. So it is certainly yeah. one that we will watch. Um, but you said there's three cases and, and uh, I know we're we've got to get up, move on to the next one. Um, but didn't this same Texas court recently opine on another aspect? of the ACA. It seems like the prevented services mandate. We get the Texas courts seem to be fairly active in this realm. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And um, to help explain this one, let's go back to some background again. Under the ACA, insurers and group health plans offering non-grandfathered coverage have to provide uh, preventive services without cost sharing. We all love this, actually. This is a provision of the ACA, I think. I guess I can't speak for everybody, but we get to go have our annual exams. We don't pay cost sharing. We get immunizations. There's certain preventive care that we no longer have to cost share or pay cost share for. The way that that's determined is really is what is an issue in this case. How do we know what's preventive services? What, what, are, what Who's deciding that? And the covered requirements really are, are those services given an A or B rating from what's called the US Preventive Services Task Force or PSTF. That's one group. Vaccines re recommended by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices or ACIP, ACIP. So that they're another group. And then there's preventive care and screenings for children and women recommended by the Health Resources and uh, Services Administration or HRSA to know those players of who is deciding what is a preventive service and that's a big part of what's happening in this case right and we we've seen some interesting questions for example that relates to different uh drugs and whether they're preventive but um but let's that's some cool background so what happened in this case let's move on yeah so the plaintiffs here include two businesses and six individuals who challenged the preventive care mandates under what's under the constitution and under what's known as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act or RFRA. And each plaintiff wanted to obtain or provide health insurance that excludes or limits coverage currently required by the preventive care mandates. And those included the PSTF, remember that's one of those groups, they recommended uh, coverage for pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP drugs which are meant to prevent HIV infections for individuals who are at high risk of HIV acquisition and HRSA recommended coverage of contraceptives. These individuals and businesses objected to the services required uh, by that preventive care mandate for a variety of religious and economic re reasons. So that's why we get the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in here. Um, the defendants were really um, just different parties within the federal government. Uh, but the plaintiffs brought five claims, including allegations that the ACA preventive care mandates violate the Constitution's appointments clause because the appointment process for members of those boards that we talk about, the PSTF, ACIP, and HRSA, um, that process did not satisfy the constitutional method for appointing officers of the United States. So said another way, the process by which the preventive services designation is made violates the Constitution. And on this issue, the, the court ruled that the appointment of the officers uh, of ACIP and HRSA satisfied the constitutional requirements, but there was a different process that did not satisfy 
those requirements for the appointment of the PSTF officers. And again, wow, this is getting this getting technical. <laughs> Definitely something that they put some thought into to, to come up with this argument. Uh, yeah, and remember, PSTF is where those those uh, drugs and for prep and and coverage of contraceptives came from. So they really, yeah, you're you're right. They're they're laser focusing on exactly what they want out of this. Um, and so the court the court agreed with them on that part. And then the plaintiffs also asserted that the prep mandate, and that's that's the coverage for the prep drug, violates the RFRA. And on this issue, the court also ruled in favor of the plaintiffs and determined that the PrEP mandate substantially burdened the exercise of religion by the plaintiffs and that the defendants didn't really show that the PrEP mandate furthers a compelling governmental interest and that there's not what we call a least restrictive means of furthering that interest. In other words, there, there might be other ways that the uh, government could, could achieve the same goal that they're, they're seeking. What did the court talk about what, in terms of the remedy? Yeah, so it's interesting. The court reserved ruling on, on the appropriate remedy and, and mentioned that they would say something in the future, but we know this decision is going to be appealed as well, and so litigation continues. Um, so it's similar to the uh, case we just talked about with the ACA as well, but employers should be aware, really, that this is a basic ACA requirement that's you know under this same legal scrutiny and um, we'll continue to monitor things and watch. We'll have to wait and see what it all means. Um, for now, it's a, a reminder to employers and plan sponsors that the ACA's preventive services requirement is still in force. So this doesn't mean that you can stop providing those services. This is just a very narrow challenge to part of it, but it could have broader implications overall for the ACA and the preventive care mandate. Um, but we, again, expect this to kind of work its way through the appeals courts and maybe end up with this U.S. Supreme Court a couple months down the line as well. We'll just have to monitor it. Exactly. Yeah. So very interesting challenges, two of which are really just to watch and see. But the, the first one really with COBRA can, can take some very practical um, application away from it in, in terms of um, how to document that uh, eligibility notice and in, any other notice that's sent out. And these other two really... Uh, kind of a heads up of what's happening in the courts and what's being challenged is something that we will certainly follow and, and report on as any changes are made. But Chase, thanks for um, presenting all these to us. And as we like to say, that's a wrap. Thanks. Thank you for joining.